Welcome to Lights, Camera, Author. I'm Jim Juno. Since 1929, Hollywood's brightest stars have flocked to the Chateau Marmont as if it were a second home. An apartment building turned hotel, the Chateau has been the backdrop for generations of gossip and folklore. Where director Nicholas Ray slept with his 16-year-old Rebel Without a Cause star, Natalie Wood. Jim Morrison swung from the balconies. John Belushi suffered a fatal overdose, and Lindsay Lohan got the boot after racking up nearly $50,000 in charges in less than two months. But despite its mythic reputation, much of what has happened inside the Chateau's walls has eluded the public eye until now. Sean Levy is the former film critic of The Oregonian and KGWTV. His writings have appeared in Sight and Sound, Film Comment, American Film, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, and many others. He has a new book out called The Castle on Sunset, Life, Death, Love, Art, and Scandal at Hollywood's Chateau Marmont, where he recounts the wild revelries and scandalous liaisons, the creative breakthroughs and the marital breakdowns, the births and deaths to which the hotel has been a party. Let's join the conversation where I talk with Sean Levy about his book, The Castle on Sunset. Sean Levy, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much. Now, your new book is called The Castle on Sunset, and it is, the, it is basically the story of Chateau Mamont from, from its inception up to modern day. Yeah, it's, a, it's basically the biography of a building and the, the culture that surrounded the building. So this, this famous hotel in Hollywood that was uh, built during the, just before the Great Depression and has weathered 90 years now of Hollywood history. And because of its unique location, it's right on the Sunset Strip. It's been in the vortex of a bunch of different activity over the years. Uh, and it's today, well, not, not during these, these strange times we're currently experiencing, but in this 21st century, it has been more famous, more luxurious, more hush-hush, wink-wink than it has ever been. That's the amazing thing when I was reading your book. I mean, you now let's let's get the uh, 500-pound elephant out of the room. Most people, Chateau Maumont, this is the building where John Belushi uh, basically died. You know, yeah. uh, and let's let's talk about that right away because he was that's probably the most famous episode in this building's history that's right um when belushi and the saturday night live people started going to chateau marmont in the 70s it was kind of a rundown a little bit seedy bohemian sort of place sort of like the chelsea hotel in, in new york city it was famous for housing you know rebels and offbeat people iconoclasts and belushi certainly fit that model it was also, being a hotel that catered to showbiz people, it was don't ask, don't tell. The staff were, you know, deaf, dumb, and blind to whatever the customers went on as long as they paid their bills, which were pretty cheap at the time. And Belushi had been there for months, and he was using a lot of cocaine. He was using heroin. Um, he was drinking. He wasn't bathing. He was missing meetings. He would take a rented you know, luxury car to a restaurant and leave out the back door with a drug dealer and forget where he'd left the car. Things like this were happening. Um, and nobody, nobody knew how to stop it. It was sort of like a train going downhill with no brake. Um, and 
at the time, Chateau Marmont was kind of an open secret. People in showbiz knew what it was. People in some parts of Los Angeles knew what it was. But if you weren't connected, you really didn't know what that building was. And if you'd heard of Chateau, you didn't know Chateau Marmont, you didn't necessarily connect it with that building. Once Belushi died, it became famous all over the world. And to this day, when people write about the hotel, John Belushi's name is in the, you know, it's the sort of the obit lead for the hotel. The first thing that gets mentioned is John Belushi. It amazed me when you were, in your book, you were going into such detail about how the building, I mean, it looked like Belushi lived the life basically of a hoarder, a hermit. I mean, like you said, he didn't bathe. Apparently he didn't clean up much either. No, and, and uh, after his death, his manager, Bernie Brillstein, was allowed to go in and, and uh, take personal items out um, to, to return to his family. And he was stunned by the state of the place. I mean, it was not a luxury hotel at that time. It was not the Beverly Hills Hotel or the Beverly Wilshire, but it was you know, a respectable place. And Belushi's unit was littered with pizza boxes and, you know, wine bottles and, and drug paraphernalia. It was the, the place was a, a disaster and really reflected the state of the man. In your book, I remember you saying that the, uh, the story, the part of the story, you mentioned the word also um, that the owner uh, had an issue with was the word seedy. And yes. he apparently had really spent a lot of money and time fixing the hotel up. You know, the, the hotel has had five important owners, and the guy who owned the place when Belushi died was a man named Ray Sarlat. And Ray Sarlat, I think, bought it to tear it down. It's on a really promising corner. If you put an apartment house in there in the 1970s, you would have made a nice amount of money. But like so many people in Hollywood, he was going through a divorce, and he moved into Chateau Marmont. He owned it, and he fell in love with it, and he decided to, to reclaim it. He was a builder. He knew what it needed. Um, he was, you know, gradually just just shoring the place up. It had been passed through a series of inattentive owners for about a decade, and he'd gotten it sort of stable. Um, it wasn't a luxury hotel, but it was it was good. And then um, Bob Woodward of Woodward and Bernstein Watergate fame wrote a book about John Belushi called Wired, and on the book jacket it said that Belushi was found in a seedy hotel room. And this was you know, one of the pride and joy units in the whole hotel, one of the, the two dozen bungalows on the back of the property. And Sarlat and his partner sued Simon and & Schuster and Bob Woodward, and they quickly retracted that it was a seedy. They said the condition of the room was seedy. The hotel's charming, and of course we'd love to stay there. <laughs> yeah, it was like, we didn't mean to call it hotel seedy. It was just that the room was seedy. Yeah, so. and, and Oh, CD is a CD does. The, the customer made that way. But besides the John Belushi, though, what, what impressed me was that this hotel, it basically had, it goes back to Hollywood's glamour age back in the late 20s, early 30s. Um, I believe in your book you talk about, you try to dispel some of the rumors that come out have come out over, about the book over the years. Uh, what was one of the rumors that you that you were able to either confirm or dispel? Well, there was talk about um, Greta Garbo had been an owner of the hotel. She had stayed there occasionally when she moved to New York and left movies. She never owned the hotel. Um, there was a story that uh, Led Zeppelin's John Bonham, the crazy rock and roll drummer, rode a motorcycle through the lobby of the hotel. 
the lobby of Chateau Marmont is not long enough for you to ride for three motorcycles to go end to end. You couldn't. Plus, it was at the top of a flight of stairs. There were rock and roll hotels on Sunset Strip where Bonham might have done that. It wasn't Chateau Marmont. And there, there, were, there were similar stories like that. Um, Gene Harlow. Gene Harlow, that wasn't a rumor. That really happened. Um, she was the first star to get up to, you know, outright naughtiness at Chateau Marmont back in the 30s. Um, for the first four years of its existence, the building was actually an apartment house. And then it became a long-term rental hotel. So every unit had a, a kitchen, a private parking space. You could enter the building through the garage in an elevator. You didn't have to go through a lobby. So it was kind of perfect to carry on sort of secret business. And Harlow was on, she was 22 years old. She was on her third husband. She was widowed and divorced previously. And uh, MGM, her studio, fixed her up with a, a lifelong bachelor, a cameraman who was about 20 years her senior. And they bought, they rented two units and connected them with a door. And the door locked on Gene Harlow's side, not on the other side. So basically it was two apartments. Um, the housekeeping staff noticed that two people seemed to be sleeping in Harlow's room, even when uh, her husband, Harold Rawson, was in attendance sleeping in the other room. And she entertained male companions, uh, including Clark Gable, who was her frequent co-star and, and um, her, her, her lover for some time. Um, they, she was only there for about three months, um, and she only lived for about another four years after she left. But that, that idea that you could do anything in that hotel, you could entertain male companions on your honeymoon, um, that got around. Uh, Harry Cohn, the boss of Columbia Pictures, famously told young actors, if you're going to get in trouble, do it at the Marmont. If you want to be seen, go to the Beverly Hills. If you don't want to be seen, go to Chateau Marmont. Didn't, didn't uh, uh, Marilyn Monroe also stay there? Marilyn Monroe stayed there. Um, there are no particular tales of naughtiness associated with her. She came oh. in the 50s, um, and the hotel at that time was very popular with the New York actors of the method acting school. Mm. People like Paul Newman, Rod Steiger, Marlon Brando, Rip Torn. Um, because it was not going Hollywood to be at Chateau Marmont, you could work in Hollywood, you took their money, and you left, and to prove your independence, you stayed at Chateau Marmont. And Hollywood people didn't stay there, but New York people and European people did. With the hotel's storied history, almost as legendary of their history as their penchant for secret, uh, I want to say discreetness. Uh, maybe secretness is a better word, but um, like you said, Harry Cohn said, if you're going to get in trouble, do it at the Marmont. And um, they, it, it continues to this day, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it's you know it's a tiny hotel. It's got sixty three rooms, including those bungalows that are out out of the main building. There are there are floors of the Plaza Hotel in New York that have more than sixty three rooms. You know, Vegas hotels. So it's a tiny place. Until um, the late nineteen nineties, it did not have a liquor license or a bar or a restaurant. It didn't have a gym. It only got a pool after it was in business for thirty years. So it didn't have the sort of places where paparazzi or looky-loot tourists could lie in wait and see a celebrity come by. As I mentioned, it used to be an apartment building, so you could literally drive your own car into the garage, 
get in an elevator and go up to your, your unit and no one would see you. You didn't have to pass through the lobby and get your key at the desk. And I think those things contributed to it being a place for people who valued their privacy most of all. Every hotel, particularly luxury hotels, guests' privacy is, is, a, is a premium. But at Chateau Marmont, it was like clearly known to everybody that we are not looking at you, we are not judging you. It was sort of like an open city. And as long as you, you know, stayed within the law that could be proven and paid your bill, you were welcome. That's a, that brings you brings me on to an interesting point. Uh, when you say pay your bill, let's talk about Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> you know, she, she had a, quite a bill herself, didn't she? Yeah, Lindsay Lohan came, of course, being a young person, came to the chateau in, in you know the two thousands and twenty tens, and that was a different era. It was definitely a luxury hotel at that point. It was a destination for nightlife. It had a groovy restaurant and bar. A lot of movie parties and, you know, uh, premiere nights were held there. Um, so it became a different sort of place. And Lindsay Lohan had been known to hang out there. And she was between apartments in Los Angeles and working on a television film. And she moved into Chateau Marmont. And she assumed that her production company was going to pick up the bill, which they weren't. Um, that wasn't in her contract. And in a month, she ran up a bill upwards of $40,000. Um, and the bill leaked and uh, the itemized bill came into my hands and, you know, she was there for a month. She charged uh, to, to her room about a half a dozen iPhone chargers. Um, on the 4th of July, she threw herself a party, had like a $4,000 bill out of the mini bar, that sort of thing. Um, and she eventually was asked to leave. She had no plan uh, for paying the bill back, and you know, some some arrangement was worked out, and she became welcome back there again. But it took a while, and it was terrifically embarrassing for her and for the hotel, because as I've been saying, they they don't like the secrets to get out, and this one got out. It wasn't anyone on the hotel staff who leaked the bill? It was someone on Lindsay's staff, probably. Mm. Probably they got stiffed for something, and they thought they'd get their revenge. Um, but, you know, to this day, it, it's still a place where there's excess and, and, and um, secrecy is at a premium. You're listening to Lights, Camera, Author, and I'm talking with Sean Levy about his new book, The Castle on Sunset. That's what I was wondering. Did she, you think she got kicked out more because of the bill or because the bill leaked? Well, she, no, the bill leaked after she was kicked out. So she oh, was kicked okay. out because of the bill. You know, when you got 63 rooms and they go for like six, $800 a night for the tiniest and someone is occupying one and not paying their bill, they're actually eating into your business. Get them out of here, yes. <laughs> now, I remember, I remember you, you, you also wrote, wrote about Howard Hughes, I believe, and um, he uh, would – yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Howard Hughes, uh, you know, fabulously wealthy, owned hotels, owned apartment buildings, but liked to keep little – places around him. He didn't like to be in the same place multiple nights in a row. So he had a lot of apartments and he kept a suite, um, a penthouse suite at Chateau Marmont on, you know, basically on retainer. He could go into it whenever he wanted. At first he installed his actress of the month, whoever he was courting in there, um, which is how it came to be known as the Mitzi Gaynor suite. Um, after Mitzi Gaynor rebuffed Howard's advances, Howard Hughes himself moved into Chateau Marmont, 
And he, you know, this is even before he became truly um, uh, subject to his mental illness. He, 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 he was sort of like a vampire. He kept nighttime hours. And during the day, you could see him sort of peeking through the, the drawn curtains with binoculars, spying on the young men and women who were using the swimming pool, um, scouting new talent. But he was also a, a, a terrible racist. There were black men um, working on the hotel staff, bellmen, uh, cooks in the tiny kitchen and in uh, the elevators and in the garage. And Hughes would not allow the black employees of the hotel to touch his car. And if he went to the elevator and the elevator operator was a black man, he would walk up the stairs to his penthouse apartment. I never knew that. I never knew that about Howard Hughes being being such a, a racist. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, it was connected with his germophobia and, and you know his general general paranoia, but it was it was it was to do with black men. Yes. Wow. Now you got a now when you went to the hotel uh, hotel uh, hotel Shimon, That's great. Uh, the Mar- short Chateau Marmont. If I can learn how to talk. Um, were they receptive to you? I mean, did you tell them you were doing a book? I did tell them I was doing a book. They were not interested. Um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're in the business of privacy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I get that. Um, you know, and, and part of what I was doing was uncovering the history. You know, there's a balance in the book. Um, it's very tempting to go there today or talk to people who work there who maybe left five, six years ago and get all the stories about contemporary people who are there. But that would give the book an imbalance. It would be like history, 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 then 10 pages of gossip, you know? And I had as much interest in finding out what went on there in the 50s as in the 2000s. And even with that explanation of what this project was like, they were not interested. I think they think of their hotel as a brand, I'm nobody to them. Um, they they <laughs> tried to stop us from using a picture of the hotel on the cover. You know, the hotel exists on a on a public street in Southern California. Anyone can stand on the corner and take a picture. And if you go to yeah. Google and type Chateau Marmont image, you'll get thousands of images. And they, they they can't stop you from doing that. Um, and in the end. I do wish they'd cooperated, but it wasn't necessary. You know, people people write books about Abe Lincoln every year and never interview the guy. <laughs> well, he's kind of hard to get hold of nowadays, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> Talk about secretive. <laughs> but that's amazing that they would go to that extent to say, we don't even want a picture from the outside on your book cover. Well, they, they, they failed. I, I, the, the lawyer for my publisher basically wrote wrote a letter back that amounted to, are you kidding? <laughs> so, of course, the book is on the cover of the, the the hotel is on the cover of the book, and 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 the book is a love letter to this hotel. It makes the case that it's central to the showbiz and popular culture of the last century, um, and this tiny hotel that has weathered storms. Every owner put an imprint on it, and the fellow who owns it currently, Andre Balaj, I think is is a genius. He turned uh, a rustic property into something that it never was. You go there today, it looks like it was, uh, you expect Clark Gable to turn the corner. It looks like a glamorous hotel from the 40s. And in the 40s, it was not glamorous. It was sort of, you know, 
workmanly and, and even run down a bit. So he's pulled a, a tremendous uh, uh, rabbit out of the hat in turning it into something it never was and, and made a fortune doing it and deservedly. And that's one of the things I did notice in your book is that you did you separated the uh, history of the, of the building almost with different owners. Yeah, that that's that's how I see the thing. You have the fellow who came up with the idea, built it as an apartment house. Then the Great Depression hit; he had to sell it. You had the fellow who turned it into a hotel, who was also one of the pioneers of the movie business, and he brought made it a showbiz hotel. There was a guy who owned it for 23 years who was a complete mystery man. I discovered him almost by accident. In the previous histories of this hotel, in journalism and in one book, his name was misspelled. All first, middle, and last name all wrong. And it wasn't even a typo because there were negative things said about him. So somebody had a grudge against the guy and couldn't be bothered, I guess, to, to find out his real name. When I turned him up, he was the guy who built the, the um, swimming pool, who added bungalows, who made it a racially integrated hotel, the first racially integrated hotel in showbiz hotels in West Hollywood, Beverly Hills, or Hollywood. All the others were racially restricted. He allowed gay men and women to use the hotel. He really instilled the policy of let's be tolerant of people. Let's make this a haven. Um, followed by him is Ray Sarlat, who I described, the guy who caught it while it was crumbling and shored it up. And Sarlat sold it to the current owner, Andre Balaj. And really, there's the history of the hotel. In, in those five individuals, there was a period, of, I said, of about 10 years where corporate entities owned it, and they were just keeping it afloat, collecting rents. They didn't care. Um, and that's what Sarlat res rescued it from. But other than that, it's been sort of like a pet project of five different men. What made you decide to write a book about the Chateau Marmont? You know, I've always wanted to write a book about the Sunset Strip. I've written books about um, what I call scenes. I have a book about the Rat Pack in Vegas, one about swinging London in the 1960s, one about Rome in the 1950s. And I saw the Sunset Strip in the 60s as this amazing place that started as a movie uh, hangout and then became a rock and roll hangout, climaxing with the famous Sunset Strip riots. And I could never quite get my brain around that Sunset Strip book. And I had uh, done a previous book and was batting ideas around with my editor, Yaniv Soha, at Doubleday. And he said, what about Chateau Marmont? And the book appeared in my head fully formed. Like, I didn't know page to page what it would be like, but I, I could see the arc of the book. I didn't know all the names. I didn't know all the stories and the details, but I knew what that book would be like. And I knew that I could use a foreground and background. I could turn the lens off of Chateau Marmont occasionally and look around at the Sunset Strip and tell that story of how the Sunset Strip, which is, I think, central to American popular culture since the 1920s, how it has changed and how our ideas about sex and glamour and romance and, and money and celebrity and beauty are tied into this place. But instead of writing about a whole road, I wrote about a hotel. You got any more books coming out? Always. Oh. I'm, work, uh, I'm working on a, a book about uh, the, the women pioneers of stand-up comedy. 
the women who were the, among the first to stand up in front of a microphone and tell jokes, bam, 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 like, like Bob Hope or Milton Berle or Henny Youngman, um, Phyllis Diller, Joan Rivers, a woman named Jean Carroll, who's almost completely forgotten, um, the body, Borscht Belt singers, Belle Barth and Rusty Warren, uh, Moms Mabley. So it's, it's a history of these women who were just sort of incredibly courageous, these pioneers who just, everyone said, you can't do this. And they were like, watch me. You know, exactly. we say, hold my beer. You know? I imagine, I don't know, would she, would Texas Guinan fix it, uh, fill into that? Or no, fall? I mean, she, she was a wit, but she was not a stand-up comedian. I'm, I'm interested in comic actresses. I'm not interested in, you know, people like Carol Burnett who were musical performers mm -hmm. who could do comedy. I want, you know, take my wife, please, one joke after another, bam, 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 one-liners, microphone, no, no, no sidekick. Um, and, and they're surprisingly few. Um, prior to 1963 or 64, count the women doing stand-up on one hand. Um, and even then, like, they had to fight for every gig and every, every step up the ladder. And they also had to be, or a lot of times they had to be with her husbands, like Gracie, Gracie Allen. Gracie Allen, exactly. You know, um, and, and she was playing a dope. You know, she was not, she was saying the jokes, but she was the, the dumb Dora, was what they called that act. And she did a dumb Dora act. And that's not stand-up either. That's a sketch comic. True. You know, that's similar to Gilda Radner on Saturday Night Live. Brilliantly funny, but not stand-up comedy. Well, Sean, I tell you what, this has been a lot of fun talking to you. And I want to have you back when you have that book on the stand-up female comics out, too. I'd love to do it. All right. Well, thank you, Sean. The book, is, Sean Levy is the author. The book is The Castle on Sunset. This is the story of the Chateau Marmont. Again, thank you, Sean. Thanks very much. You can find more information about the book, The Castle on Sunset, at penguinrandomhouse.com. Until next time, for Light Camera Author, I'm Jim Juno. Well, Saturday night at 8 o'clock, I know where I'm going.